and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 182, recorded on March 28th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Well, hey, Wes, let's do the news. After weeks of anticipation, GNOME 40 has been released. A range of improvements came together in 40. To get the details, we went right to the source. My name is Neil McGovern, and I'm the executive director of the GNOME Foundation. And of course, we had to ask Neil what the big changes were in GNOME 40. So yeah, the, I guess the change that everyone's talking about is uh, the move from the sort of vertical to horizontal in, in the dash and the overview. Um, yeah, so that, that certainly caused quite a few concerns when we first talk about it. Um, but I think we've ended up with something that's that works really well and seems to be, um, that seems to have people quite excited for. The overview change is GNOME 40's biggest feature and maybe most controversial. And that's why the GNOME team was glad to have user research to back up their decision. So I asked Neil, how did those research studies impact GNOME 40's changes? So so one of the things um, is that the overview hasn't really sort of seen the way of design updates since its introduction in 2011. And other aspects of the desktop have evolved. So we had notifications, system status, unlock login, things like that. Um, but the overview hasn't really seen much in the way of improvements. Um, so not only did the overview need a refresh, but there was a number of limitations in designs that kind of became apparent over the years. Um, so things like the somewhat unhelpful blank boot state, the sort of lack of coherent touchpad gestures, um, and and particular some ambiguous nature of things like the workspace switcher. So um, what we did is we went back through some original conversations, which started about 2017. And as that design took place, a great deal of user research took place. So we included sort of exploratory interviews, surveys, uh, user testing, diary studies. And so it is that research that um, sort of fed into the ongoing design work to sort of make sure that the, the new design is attractive to both new and existing users. And while the overview changes are the biggest user interface change, there's a lot of technical changes under the hood as well. Some of them relate more to GTK4, but some of them relate to the changes made to input. I asked Neil if moving input to its own thread will be noticeable by us end users. Yeah, absolutely. Um, fortunately, we managed to pull that pull that out. Um, it's quite technical the way it works, but basically the Linux kernel really, really doesn't like um, anything interrupting when you do things with um, disk access. So it doesn't really care what your mouse or your keyboard is doing. If it's touching your disk a lot, then um, it'll just drop those events um, on the side. So Hopefully this helps speed up uh, things a little bit and sort of helps us capture a bit more of that to make things smoother. Now, with these technical changes and the overview changes, that means there's going to be some work for extension developers. And there's really just no way around that. And I've noticed, and something Wes and I touched on in a previous episode, the GNOME project seems to be reaching out more to shell extension developers. And I asked for some details on those efforts. Sure. So this is um, this was started by a few members of our community. Um, it's a fairly long-running initiative, I think. Um, it's called Extensions Rebooted. And it's a collaborative effort to kind of address those issues around the GNOME shell extension ecosystem. Um, so we wanted to make a, a few different um, policy changes and technological improvements to try and build that sustainable community. 
So, I mean, its ultimate goal is to get the extension community to work with each other and have closer ties with GNOME shell developers and to provide documentation and tools. But no conversation around GNOME extensions goes very long until API is brought up. Somebody wants an API for GNOME extensions in every conversation. So I asked just about that. Is GNOME considering a stable API for extension developers to utilize? Well, so you have a strange duality here of... um, There's been a lot of talk about GNOME providing an API, which is all stable, and that to make sure extensions don't break between versions. But the downside to that is that extensions just can't be as powerful as they are now. Um, So by writing extension, you have full access and full control to all of GNOME Shell. Um, But what we're really interested in is making sure that there's um, proper documentation about how extensions work and doing things like um, providing tooling so people can find out what they need to do when a new shell version comes out and their extension needs updates because the underlying shell has changed. So that's everything from like a CI pipeline and providing a virtual machine where people can see the the nightly version of GNOME to kind of really test and, and get more involved with, with GNOME upstream rather than just working somewhere else on them by themselves. And it leads one to wonder, what are the next technical challenges for GNOME? So, yeah, the, the next kind of big thing where we're looking at is um, the move from a lot of the core apps into GTK4, which was just released in, in December. And, I mean, GTK4 has been a huge, colossal, multi-year development endeavor. And it's starting, I think, late 2016, and it just released at the end of the year. And there's a few things that have really come in from that. Um, So, I mean, just on a pure um, technical point of view, um, there's there's been a lot of work, like creating a new GL renderer for GTK. Um, So the initial motivation for that was to improve rendering performance on macOS, where the GL drivers are not as forgiving as they are on Linux. but it also gives us a chance to apply the things we've learned over our current GL render and sort of reorganize the code with an eye to future improvements and such as reordering, batching of draw commands, etc. Now, I hate to ask this, but with all that in mind, I, I had to know what is in store for GNOME 41? The big move towards uh, GTK4, I think, is going to be a a real good um a good set of um, things that you can get from that. And and those can be as much as better graphics, um, harder acceleration, um, things like that. But also there's some simple things in there that we can actually do with GTK4 now. Um, so for example, pop-ups um, that happen when you like click on a menu or something like that um, was always tricky because you have a little beak that sort of points to the button which you clicked on. And so now with the new positioning protocols, then quite frankly, it makes the beak point where it's meant to and also allows like shadows underneath and around the popover, um, which you can, and as they're window shadows, you can actually sort of click through them to go to the underlying window or simple things like we now have with GTK4 um, actually sort of accelerated um, smooth scrolling um, that has kinetic properties as well. So it just makes sort of that experience a whole lot smoother and, and feels a lot more natural. And to a a simple one, which I personally just love, and it seems a bit odd, but is is just wonderful, is that when you have a text editor, instead of just blinking the cursor on and off, you can put a slight fade in and fade out at the end, and it just makes it look so much nicer. So I think a whole lot of polish around there just to make things look and feel really good to use. Thanks to Neil McGovern for answering all our GNOME 40 questions. 
If you're feeling brave and want to give it a try, check out the Fedora 34 beta, which was just released. And if your distribution is not upgrading to GNOME 40 just yet, don't feel left out. There's a new stable release of the GNOME 3 series, 3.38.5. It's a bug fix release with patches for numerous issues and crashes, along with support for handling monitor changes during screencasts. Sysadmin or not, there comes a time when we must all update. This was one of those rare moments, though, where we got a heads up something was coming. The OpenSSL project warned us on Monday, March 22nd, that critical security fixes were forthcoming. Then on March 25th, OpenSSL version 1.1.1H was released, with a check to disallow certificates in the chain that have explicitly encoded elliptic curve parameters. As we record, patches have landed in just about every Linux distribution, so update from your local repo today. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account and support the show. Linode makes cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible. We use Linode for everything in JB 3.0. Just over the weekend, we were spinning up new rigs on Linode because once you start, you just can't stop. It's like potato chips, and that's why that $100 credit is great because you can get a real sense of what you can do with Linode. There's a lot there but it's nice, easy to use, and accessible. And with 11 data centers around the world, there's probably something close to you that's gonna work really fast. Linode's been around since 2003, one of the first companies in cloud computing, three years before AWS and other enterprise providers. So they've refined this well. They really have this thing dialed in. Their SSDs are super fast. Their interconnect between their data centers is nuts because they're their own ISP. They're truly dedicated to offering the best virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it'll run on Linode. Linode.com slash LAN. While you're there, check them out. Create an account, get that $100 credit, and support the show. I often talk about Linode's fantastic support and how they'll let you do kind of just about anything you can that's legal with the system. I, I think this is really making the point this week, though. In the show notes, I'll have a document that's forked from Linode's own documentation on installing Windows on Linode. Yeah, there's actually people that want to run Windows on Linode. You never know what reason somebody might have. And it is indeed possible. Myself, I love Linode for all the distributions they support. Arch, CentOS, Alpine, Ubuntu, Debian, OpenSUSE, all of them. They're all on there. I mean, they really get Linux, and it shows when you start to use Linode. So go try them out. See why there are hosting provider of choice while we host everything for JB 3.0 on Linode and see what they can do for you. Linode.com slash LAN. Free software advocate Richard Stallman is rejoining the board of the Free Software Foundation. Stallman founded the FSF in 1985 and acted as its president until 2019, when he resigned after making widely criticized statements about convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Stallman announced the news during Libre Planet's live stream last week. I have an announcement to make. I'm now on the Free Software Foundation Board of Directors once again. We were working on a video to announce this with, but that turned out to be difficult. We didn't have experience doing that sort of thing, so it didn't get finished. But here's the announcement. Some of you will be happy at this, and some might be disappointed, but who knows? In any case, that's how it is. And I'm not planning to resign a second time. Stallman had resigned from the FSF as well as his position at MIT 
after participating in a conversation about MIT's leadership and its ties with Jeffrey Epstein. Stallman defended MIT professor Marvin Minsky, who had allegedly had sex with one of Epstein's trafficking victims, saying, quote, the most plausible scenario was that Minsky had been unaware that the woman was being coerced. For some critics, the problems went beyond that exchange, covering other statements and actions he'd made over his years in the free and open source software community. Even after his resignation, Stallman remained in charge of the GNU project. This news does not change that status, and Jeffrey Knoth remains the president of the Free Software Foundation. The major development since the news became public now is that a range of pushback about his return has come out, as well as concerns around how the voting process was conducted. An open letter by major free software projects is urging the removal of Richard Stallman and the entire FSF board. In part, the open letter states, Richard M. Stallman, frequently known as RMS, has been a dangerous force in the free software community for a long time. He has shown himself to be misogynist, ableist, and transphobic, among other serious accusations. They then go on to say, These sorts of beliefs have no place in the free software, digital rights, and tech communities. With his recent reinstatement to the board of directors of the Free Software Foundation, we call for the entire board of the FSF to step down, and for RMS to be removed from all leadership positions. Letter signers include Neil McGovern, Gnome Foundation Executive Director and former Debian Project Leader, Deb Nicholson, General Manager of the Open Source Initiative, Matthew Garrett, a former member of the FSF Board of Directors, all eight members of the Xorg Foundation Board of Directors, Elena Hashman of the Debian Technical Committee, Open Source Initiative and Kubernetes Project, Molly DeBlanc of the Debian Project and Gnome Foundation, and more than 2,000 other signatures. As you might expect, an open letter in support of RMS has also been created, and it has been signed by over 3,500 individuals as of this recording. A section of their letter that gives us insight to their position states the following. Historically, RMS has been expressing his views in ways that upset many people. He is usually more focused on the philosophical underpinnings and pursuing the objective truth in linguistic purism, while underemphasizing people's feelings on matters he's commenting on. This makes his arguments vulnerable to misunderstanding and misrepresentation, something which we feel is happening in the open letter calling for his removal. His words need to be interpreted in this context and taken into account that more often than not, he's not looking to put things diplomatically. Regardless, Stallman's opinions on the matters he is being persecuted over are not relevant to his ability to lead a community such as the FSF. Furthermore, he is entitled to his opinions just as much as anyone else. Members and supporters do not have to agree with his opinions, but should respect his right to freedom of thought and speech. Having read both letters, I hear what each side is saying, and some of his defenders' points might even have some legitimate merit. But this isn't one of those things that's going to go away with time. This isn't going to get better in a few months. In fact, this very reaction we are seeing right now, even a year and a half after RMS originally resigned, proves that point. People will never forget the history of things that RMS has said. They're online and documented forever. And here is the crux of the issue. The Free Software Foundation is an establishment of ideas, which they would claim are moral ideas. The public's reaction and memory to all of this is totally incompatible with the Free Software Foundation's mission to campaign against threats to computer user freedom and their other stated goals. To truly win that campaign, they must provide moral leadership to all of society, and they must do so effectively. 
regardless of anyone's personal opinion about RMS and what he has said, the effectiveness of the FSF will be limited by this situation. Limited in many ways, from mindshare to community. And I suspect nothing short of a full board change will actually make those who are concerned about all this trust the FSF again. The reality is the human aspects of creating software eventually become the hardest aspects to manage. And if the world truly needs saving like RMS says it does, then perhaps he should reflect on the wise words of Batman. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Or put another way, the steady progress of time inevitably brings a shift in the way and what society values. The FSF was not immediately available to provide comment on Stallman's return or what role he will play on the board. But we'll keep an eye on this story, and you'll find extensive links at linuxactionnews.com slash 182. Linux.ting.com. New plans, same great service. And I can tell you, friends, a good family plan is hard to find, but Ting's new Flex plan addresses that particular pain point in a very customer-friendly way. You can add as many lines on your account as you need, just $10 per line. Every line has unlimited text and calls, and every line shares the same pool of data. And you just pay $5 per gigabyte of data needed. But if you need 2 gigs or 20 gigs or more, there's a perfect Ting plan for you. Every Ting plan gets access to Ting's award-winning customer service with nationwide LTE and 5G coverage, plus the freedom of no contracts ever. And the thing that's great about Ting is you have three fantastic networks to choose from. I like Verizon these days, but there's several you can pick. And it's simple to switch to Ting. Pretty much any phone works on Ting with all those networks. So just head to linux.ting.com. Check out your current phone. See if it works. Create an account and pick the plan that's right for you. When you go to linux.ting.com, you're going to get $25 off, too, to work with. That might pay for your entire first month. That's what a great deal Ting is. Ting will just send you a SIM card, and you pop that in, and you are good to go. Cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier with Ting's new plans. Get everything you need at linux.ting.com. I can tell you as a longtime customer, it's great, and there has never been a better time to try Ting than right now. Bring your phone and get $25 off at linux.ting.com. It caught our attention this week when the new CEO of Qualcomm said the current global chip shortage might not end until late 2021. So we wanted to bring you up to date and tell you how this might impact the Linux ecosystem. How did this all start? In short, COVID-19. Obviously, supply chain shutdowns from the pandemic are going to play a role here. That has a knock-on effect. But additionally, sales are up across the board. Anything that has a chip in it, it's selling more of right now. People are upgrading their gear. And CNBC's business news reporter, Kif Leswing, put it this way. So what became very clear is that electronics companies, you know, just there was a supply chain disruption. But once that kind of started working its way through in the summer and China started getting back to work, electronics companies needed knew that they needed to increase production by a lot. And there is no sign sales are slowing. Global semiconductor sales have grown from 412 billion in 2019 to 439 billion in 2020. Car manufacturers are some of the hardest hit, but this is a problem throughout the tech sector. How quickly things get back to normal depends on the planning companies did before the lockdowns. 
at least according to Daniel Newman, research analyst. It sort of depended on the stockpiling that these different companies did. You know, I mentioned Toyota. Toyota's in better shape, uh, had stockpiled more, where other companies, when they they cut their uh, forecasts, cut their, um, you know, manufacturing for periods of time, and now they're waiting in the back of the line. So we wanted to take the temperature of the Linux ecosystem and contacted System76's CEO, Carl Rochelle, on how the shortage is impacting their systems born to run Linux. And Carl wrote in with this. He says, chip supply constraints have caused procurement issues for motherboards, CPUs, and GPUs. We've adjusted our purchasing strategy and hold more in stock in an attempt to even out supply for our customers. Even with that, it is a challenging environment. Carl goes on to note that their new AMD laptop, the Pangolin, sold out faster than anticipated, and AMD CPU supply is too tight for them to provide even estimates for new stock arrivals. GPUs are a nightmare, Carl says. Tariffs and demand are pushing up prices and forcing OEMs to speculate in the GPU market just as much as everyone else, particularly with NVIDIA chips. Both AMD and NVIDIA are beginning to loosen up, uh, but that's starting from an extremely tight supply situation to begin with. Carl goes on to say, well, I suppose we're happy that we're getting the tiny amount of stock at all because it's absolutely better than nothing. He says that they anticipate at least another six months of challenging supply. And in general, it means fewer options for the entire Linux ecosystem until the supply chain can catch up with demand. Not an easy situation to deal with, but I have faith they'll eventually figure it out. And it just makes me look forward to our tips for getting the best performance out of Linux in a future Linux Unplugged. Absolutely. You'd be surprised the kind of kick you can get out of an old machine with the right tweaks. But we'll be back next week, so go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. Hey, and if you need more show, be sure to check out Self-Hosted 41, the one with Girling Guy and his 16-disc Raspberry Pi 4. That's at selfhosted.show slash 41. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week.